This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture text this evening comes from John chapter 5. John 5, and I will be reading verses 19 through 47. I'll actually start the reading in verse 16. Um, We'll be looking at 19 through 47 tonight, but to get some of the context and reminder of where we were last time, I'll start reading in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness with he... The witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. 
You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from man, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word this evening, I pray that by your spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it. That we would recognize your son, Jesus Christ, for who he is. That he has all authority, that he has all judgment and that the scriptures bear witness about him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We return tonight to John's gospel as it tells us about this escalating conflict concerning Jesus' authority. He has publicly and openly contradicted the perceived authority of the Jewish religious leaders. He has not done so subtly or quietly. You might remember first back in chapter 2, he overturned tables in the temple and drove out the merchants, those who would pollute and pervert the place of God's worship. And then last week we saw that he did an act of healing, a merciful act on the Sabbath, rejecting the additional man-made laws and impositions that the leaders of the Jews had added to what God's word actually required. And for the first time last week, we saw in John that the leaders of the Jews were ready to kill Jesus for his rejection of their authority. We have reached something of a point of no return as Jesus journeys towards his coming suffering and death. It is not as though this is an unexpected or unfortunate tragedy or a coincidental development. This is by God's design, according to his purposes. We have seen thus far in John how Jesus has acted in certain ways at certain times in light of the fact that his time had not yet come. He will not allow himself to fall into the hands of those that will take his life until the proper time. Jesus knows that ultimately this is where all of this is going. In fact, as the Son of God, as God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself purposes this. Jesus' suffering and death was not the tragic outcome of the actions of evil men. It certainly was an evil action, but it was the plan. It was what God decreed to come to pass. From eternity, the means by which God would redeem a people for his name. This path to the cross that Jesus willingly walks takes a particular form. 
It works through a particular conflict that Jesus has with these Jewish leaders. It's not ultimately about the details of healing or Sabbath observance or what is going on in the temple. Those are symptoms of the greater conflict. The conflict is about authority. The Jewish religious leaders, they lay claim to authority to rightly interpret and apply God's word and impose their interpretations on the people. Now, they had surely dealt with opposition before, but they had managed to maintain their power and continue to exercise it. Now, they likely do not think that they are in the wrong here. They believe that they are pious and they are righteous, that they are the keepers of the most pure form of the faith. To put down Jesus would be to put down what was in their eyes a rebellious and heretical sect that was forming. You could see an example of the kind of piety they might have thought they had, for instance, in the Apostle Paul when he was Saul before his conversion. We've been discussing this some at our Wednesday night Bible study in Galatians. Before his conversion, when he was Saul, he had zeal. Saul would have thought of himself as a fighter for the truth, but his zeal was misplaced. It was for the wrong side. The problem Saul encountered and the problem that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time faced was this. The man they have entered into conflict with this time is the incarnation of the very God they claim to represent and serve. Whether they know it or not, their ways and works have corrupted and perverted the truth of God's word. And God himself is in their midst to take back what they have stolen, to take back what they have corrupted. Now that we have seen this conflict erupt in these preceding verses, we will now hear Jesus' teaching concerning his authority. What does he have to say about this conflict and who he is and what he has come to do? That is the text we will look at this evening. and We will do so in four points. First, authentic authority in verses 19 through 23. Jesus will talk about the source of his authority and why his authority is the genuine article over and against his opponents. Second, we will see abiding authority in verses 24 through 30. Jesus' authority has interests and implications greater and higher than merely the things of this life and this world. Third, we see attested authority in verses 31 through 40. Jesus will call witnesses those that attest, those that vouch for his true power and authority over all things. And then fourth and finally, we will see accusing authority in verses 40 through 47. Having established his authority, Jesus will teach concerning the implications for those who would reject it. So again, we have authentic authority, abiding authority, attested authority, and accusing authority. So first we will look at authentic authority in verses 19 through 23. We read that Jesus answers the Jews. Specifically, he is answering this development that the Jews have intimated that they want to kill him. 
This is a tense situation. The pressure could not possibly be higher. So how does Jesus answer them? He begins with, most assuredly, I say to you, or depending on your translation, it might say something like, truly, truly, I say to you. This is the language that in Jesus' day, one would preface something with when they want to make it absolutely clear that they are telling the truth. The Greek text here is actually amen, amen, using the same little word with which we end our prayers, which in the words of our catechism, in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say amen. In other words, this is a word that one uses when he or she is really sure of what is being said. And here, Jesus uses it twice. What is he expressing with such confidence and certainty? It is a statement of where his authority comes from. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Now this is a statement that has caused no small amount of controversy or confusion in the history of the church. For here it may sound at first glance like Jesus, the Son of God, is making himself out to be inferior to the Father, lacking perhaps his own will. From this, many heretical doctrines have been derived. Arius, one of the arch-heretics of the early church, taught from this and from other texts that the Son of God was not God, but some lesser created being. And that God was not triune, the Son was subordinate, the Son was less. We see this kind of theology still coming up today. For instance, in modern cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they basically believe the same thing concerning the Son that Arius did. We see more subtle forms as well. There's been a teaching popularized in recent years known as eternal functional subordination, or eternal subordination of the Son, or eternal relationships of authority and submission, different names all for the same teaching. Now this view is an attempt to push back against egalitarian teaching and various forms of social Trinitarianism that attempt to use the relationships between persons of the Trinity as a model for human relationships. So advocates of EFS, they would say that the Son is eternally submissive and subordinate to the Father. And this, for instance, provides a model for how women are to be submissive to men. Now, wanting to flesh out the roles of the sexes is important, but to do it in this way is not orthodox. It is violating what our creeds and confessions teach regarding the Trinity, regarding the equality of the persons, regarding God's simplicity, that the three persons are of the same substance, or as our catechism says, these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, here we must make a distinction. It's similar to one I had to make this morning when I spoke about God speaking analogically. We have to make a distinction between God and his being, often referred to as the ontological trinity, God as he is in himself, which we are not capable of completely or perfectly knowing, 
and God in his works and actions, known as the economic trinity. God has the acts and relates to his creatures. While the three persons are equal in power and glory and of the same essence, while God is simple, he's not divided, he is not complex, and that he does not have parts, and while these, same per- while these persons share the same will, the same power and glory, um, all of the same things that come with that, in the incarnation and taking on a human nature, the Son takes on human flesh and enters into creation, and in that is submissive to the Father, is made lower than the Father for a time. We cannot fully understand or grasp or comprehend this and what all is going on here. We cannot peer into the knowledge of God in himself, the archetypal knowledge. We only have ectypal knowledge, this analogical knowledge, how God accommodates himself to us so that we can understand. God the Son in his being is fully equal to and united to the Father, always willing what the Father wills. We see this reciprocal unity continuing in verse 20. The Son is in perfect unity with the Father. The Father is in perfect unity and union with the Son. What the Father and the Son see, know, do, and will is in perfect unity. There is no division. It is the same. We also see that Jesus is promising the doing of greater works that he will do in accord with the Father's will, greater signs, greater wonders, greater miracles than those he has already done. Now, it is remarkable here that given how the Jews' accusation against Jesus would be that he is making himself equal to God, Jesus' response is basically, yes, he is equal to God the Father. His words would be blasphemous on the lips of anyone else, but they are true words only on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God. Jesus' authority is authentic authority because it is God's own authority. To further support his claim, Jesus, in verse 21, invokes the resurrection of the dead. Here we see the unity of the Father and the Son in the plan of salvation. The Father and the Son are unified to save a particular people, to give life to them, to raise them from the dead. Now there is also an echo, a foreshadowing of what is to come concerning Jesus. He will undergo a human death, and the Father will raise him. The resurrection will be the ultimate confirmation of Jesus' power and authority. But that is still some time off. Sufficient for now to say Jesus is claiming that his authority is authentic because it is the very authority of God. We see in verse 22, more of the work and unity of the Trinity in dealing with man. We see that the Father has committed to the Son the work of judgment. It will be before the risen and glorified Christ that we will all someday stand in judgment. But this judgment begins even in this world and even in this life. Even in this discourse, Jesus is rendering judgment 
on the works and ways of the Jews, of the priests and the Pharisees of that day who trusted not in God, but in themselves. This judgment is not separated or divided from the will of the Father, for God's will is unified and simple. But it is executed particularly through the Son. It is judgment in this life and judgment in the life to come. Jesus concludes this section in verse 23, that in light of what he has said, all should honor him, the Son, as they honor the Father. In other words, to these Jews, he is telling them that if they truly honored God, they would truly honor him because he is God in the flesh. That is why his authority is true and how they demonstrate their authority to be false by not honoring him. But after authentic authority, we come to our second point, which is abiding authority in verses 24 through 30. Now here we see something of a continuation of the previous point regarding God's power in resurrection and judgment. In verse 24, Jesus tells them the way of salvation, the only way of salvation. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. To believe in Christ to believe in who he is and what he has done is to believe in God and to have eternal life. There is no other way. No Christ, no salvation. Anyone who claims belief in God but does not believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel is condemned. They are serving a false God. They are serving a false religion. And their end is death. Just think of who Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing Jews, and not just some fringe offshoot group of Jews. It's the very institution and establishment of mainstream Judaism in his day, the priests, the Pharisees, and others. Now, Jews would claim to worship the same God that we do, but there is no life in them because they reject Christ. The same is true of Muslims. They would claim to worship the same God, but they reject Christ. Same of Mormons, same as Jehovah's Witnesses, as I mentioned earlier. Any others who would claim to know our God, the true God, but would know him apart from the word of Christ in the gospel. So the authority of Christ is not only authentic, it is abiding. It is eternal. It pertains not only to this life, but to the life to come. We see this in the following discourse concerning the resurrection and judgment. An hour is coming when all who die will be raised at the call of Christ's voice, and his authority will be undeniable in that day. But there will be a separation made. Those who believe in Christ, those who repent unto life, those who receive Christ's righteousness imputed to them and are found pleasing to God will be resurrected to eternal life, the rest to eternal condemnation in hell. This is under the authority of the Son, whom the Father, who being God and having life in himself, also gives to the Son to have life in himself. 
Here we have something of the mystery of eternal begottenness, how the Father begets the Son in eternity. But also this is seen in the incarnation and in that the Father gives Jesus life from the grave, the resurrection from the dead. And not only does the Father give the Son life, he gives him the authority to judge man. Jesus has and executes this authority both now and at the resurrection because as we have seen, he is perfectly unified with the Father. The Father and the Son do not act independently or autonomously of each other. They retain at all times the perfect unity of their wills and actions. It's not as though if God the Father was judged, he would judge one way, and God the Son would a different way. Many try to make it this way in what they believe. For instance, they would treat the God of the Old Testament as harsh, as stern, as even evil or wicked, and God the Son, the God of the New Testament, as being merciful and loving. No, they are one and the same. They are unified all throughout. Because the Son carries out the will of God, it is perfect and righteous. And it includes this carrying out of judgment in this life and the life to come. The most terrifying reality that these Jewish leaders should be reckoning with is not that someone is questioning their authority or their ways, but that they stand under the final judgment of the God whom they claim to serve, but whom they have really not known. Jesus is giving them a warning, but it seems to go unheeded. Jesus will be authority and Jesus will be judge long after their authority is gone. His is eternal authority. It is abiding authority. But after Jesus' authentic and abiding authority, we see also that Jesus' authority is attested authority in verses 31 through 39. What does it mean for this authority to be attested? It means that others bear witness to it. To attest to something is to essentially make a legally binding witness to something. When I lived in Wyoming, I was for a time a notary. So my responsibility was to attest to the fact that a person signing a document in front of me was really the person that they claimed to be. So Jesus here, almost in a court-like fashion, calls witnesses, he lists witnesses who attest to the authenticity of his divine power. The first witness he calls is John the Baptist. We have seen before how John has repeatedly borne witness to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Jesus is reminding the Jews of this. They have at various times sent their own representatives to question John to figure out what he and his followers were doing. Now Jesus here also attests of John, confirming the things that John has said about him. So John has previously testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John again testified in the end of chapter 3 that Jesus was the Son of God who was sent from heaven. And whoever does not believe in him will not receive life. And Jesus is saying that the things John testified about him are true. Yet Jesus also makes what might sound to us 
like a rather surprising statement about John's testimony in verse 34. I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. In other words, he doesn't need the testimony of John the Baptist in his favor. Rather, he mentions it for the sake of those listening. By extension, for us, we know of John, and it gives us confirmation and affirmation concerning what we are to believe about Christ. Jesus gets his authority directly from God. It is the authority of God. He doesn't need to be vouched for by any man. And yet, John, as the forerunner, has spoken the truth concerning him. Jesus also points out that for a time, these Jews received and embraced John the Baptist's ministry. John drew large crowds, even some of these priests and Pharisees. For a time, John was something of a celebrity. But ultimately, while some believed, many including those that Jesus addressed here, did not accept John's testimony concerning Christ. The next witness that Jesus calls on is his own miracles. This is what we see in verse 36. Jesus has done signs. He has done miraculous acts that demonstrate God's power. He has done other works and signs that the Father has sent him to do. Some have been very public. They have been widely known, sufficient to leave people without excuse of ignorance. These very Jewish persecutors of Jesus knew that that very day he had healed a paralyzed man at the pool. But on the same day, they also resolved to kill him. The next witness that Jesus calls upon is the witness of the Father. The Father testifies concerning Christ. This happened out loud at Jesus' baptism, which while it was not recorded in John, was recorded in the other Gospels. When Jesus was baptized, a voice was heard from heaven, the voice of God the Father, testifying that this was his beloved Son. The Father has also testified through the Scriptures. More on that in a moment. But with this testimony of the Father, the Jews still do not believe. Though they would claim to be those who knew God and had God and taught concerning God, they did not believe. Their hearts were blinded. They had no fellowship with God, as evidenced by their lack of fellowship with Christ. Then finally, in verse 39, Jesus calls upon the witness of the Scriptures. See, these Jewish leaders, they would have claimed to be the authoritative and accurate teachers of Scripture. You might remember Jesus' earlier soft rebuke of Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Are you not a teacher of Israel? Jesus was addressing the teachers of Israel, who through their knowledge of the Old Testament should have known who Jesus was and what he had come to do. But they do not. They persist in their rebellion and unbelief. The scriptures, all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation testify concerning Christ. That is the main point of all of them. There are far too many people in our day who look at the scriptures as just a book of history or a book of moral values or a book to do scholarly research and speculation in. But apart from the knowledge of Christ, 
Apart from saving faith, this is all in vain. No one would have known the text of the Old Testament better than this crowd Jesus was addressing that day. It didn't matter. The Scriptures that bore witness to Christ bore witness against those who rejected Him. So Jesus has all these witnesses to His true power and authority, but these Jewish leaders would not believe. They persisted in their rebellion. They persist in their wanting to kill Jesus. And this has consequences, as we see in our final point. After we have seen Jesus' authentic, abiding, and attested authority, we come to accusing authority in verses 40 through 47. Because there are all these witnesses to Christ, and because the people do not believe, there are consequences. Jesus knows that they will continue to reject him. He knows who are his, and he knows who is not. And so Jesus accuses them. He tells them that they are unwilling to come to him to have life, in verse 40. His authority is sufficient and self-attesting. He does not receive it from man, but wherever it has come from, specifically given that it has come from God, they still won't accept it. This was even though they often accepted the teachings of other men's. It was on the basis of their man-made traditions of the rabbis and others that they brought this charge against Jesus. Whatever external righteousness they claimed to have or whatever fidelity to the Scriptures they said they had, it was worthless because they did not have the love of God in them, the love that comes through knowledge of Christ. The problem was not that the Jews would not receive men as authoritative. It wasn't just that Jesus was a man and they were rejecting him because he was a man. The problem was that they only received men as authoritative. They had their circle. They had their echo chamber of teachers and traditions where they all patted each other on the back in various ways, accumulated their own writings and teachings, added these to God's Word. They honored themselves. They honored each other. But in doing this, they neglected the honor that comes from God. And so Jesus calls one last witness against them, in verse 45, Moses, in whom they trust. These Jewish leaders were attempting a righteousness by the law. They claimed by all their practices and traditions and additions to be the faithful servants of Moses and of the law of God. But they have missed the point of Moses. Moses wrote concerning Christ. When Moses wrote about the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent, he wrote about Christ. When Moses described in detail all the sacrifices and ceremonies that the people were to do because of sin, these were types and shadows to point them to Christ. When Moses wrote about the greater prophet who was to come after him, he wrote about Christ. But the Jews were so wrapped up in the letter of the law of Moses, and even trying to improve upon the letter of the law of Moses by their own additions and traditions, they missed what it was really all about. If they really believed Moses, they would believe Christ. But they did not. By rejecting Christ, 
They reject Moses and they reject God. No Christ, no salvation. So Jesus here has brought this indictment against the Jewish leaders who have despised him and conspired against him. Yet make no mistake, this indictment is no less true here and now than it was then. You can think of yourself as righteous. You can think of yourself as moral. You can think that you will have eternal life because you are a good person. But apart from Christ, you will face wrath and condemnation. Eternal life comes only to those who believe in and rest on this gospel of Jesus Christ. None of us can save ourselves by our righteousness. Salvation is only in Him. You might even think as many in our day do that Jesus was a nice guy. He was a moral teacher. He showed us how to live. What we have seen here very clear tonight that He is much more than that and He demands to be acknowledged as much more than that. He must be acknowledged as who He really is. God the Son, eternal, almighty, with all authority and power over all things. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He is the only Savior. If Jesus is not these things to you, friend, you are in danger. You have heard this word. In it are the words of life. That salvation and eternal life come through Jesus Christ alone. Belief in who He is and what He has done. No other belief, no other practice will save you. No other name will save you. Do not be as those who scoffed and mocked and rejected Jesus that day in Jerusalem. Or those who scoff and mock and reject Him even now. He will be the judge He will have the last word. All will bow and confess Him one day. But some will do so only on the way to judgment. This does not have to be you. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ as He is offered in His word today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for these words of life, these words of truth concerning your son, Jesus Christ, and his testimony as to who he is and what he has come to do. We praise you and thank you that the son has all authority over all things. We thank you that these witnesses bear witness to us and that by your Holy Spirit, we can receive them. I pray that all here gathered would receive them and that those who have received them would be faithful to take these truths to a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.